How is it determined if an employee's injury that occurs on or close to water should be reported to Longshore or to Protection and Indemnity or to both? When you get an injury that's on or close to the water, making the determination of Longshore or P&I coverage is a complicated one. But P&I requires a vessel. So that's the first question. Did the injury happen on a vessel or to somebody that normally works on board a vessel, like a crewman? If you don't have that trigger, uh, then you can pretty much bypass P&I. From there, you really need to get with somebody, an adjuster or a broker that's very familiar with the two coverages to work through which coverage really should apply and which policy should respond primarily. Nevertheless, if you have a claim that could be on the borderline, uh, the way to do it is to definitely report it to both carriers. Um, pick the one with your broker or with your adjuster that's going to take the lead and report it to the other one for records only and explain um, that the claim is being handled by the other carrier. That way you're going to make sure that if it comes to light that the claimant or their attorney later down the road decides it should be the other type of claim, uh, the carrier's been put on notice. Is Longshore payroll included by NCCI when they calculate an insured's experience mod? Yes. For all traditionally licensed carriers who are members of NCCI, the Longshore payrolls are used in the promulgation of the experience mod. In some instances, you may find that an insured may have a previously placed uh, Longshore coverage through an alternate market, such as a mutual or a surplus lines carrier. Usually, those carriers would not report the payrolls to NCCI. This can give a false calculation of the experience mod. You should always check the experience mod worksheet to determine if the Longshore payrolls have been included. In a case where the Longshore payrolls are missing, you would need to have an ERM-6 form completed. Then, with the carrier's permission, it could be filed with NCCI to have the experience mod repromulgated. If an employee's duties includes both longshore and away from water duties, is it permitted to split the employee's payroll between USLNH and non-USLNH class codes? If yes, how is the payroll split determined? Assuming that away from water duties means state act exposures, then yes, the payrolls can be split. In order to do this, you must follow the appropriate rules for documentation of the payroll. This includes have properly assigned classifications for the insured in accordance with the rules of the classification system. If there is uncertainty as to the proper classification, NCCI or the appropriate state bureau can help with that. The insured must maintain proper payroll records that clearly show the actual payroll by classification for each employee. And remember that division of payroll isn't permitted for clerical and outside sales. Are there many standard markets for USLNH? The Federal Department of Labor publishes a list online of, of carriers who are approved to write longshore insurance.
Uh, last count, there were some 300 or so carriers on that list. Um, but when you actually go down to find out who is writing it um, today, you'll find that there are probably some 17 uh, voluntary carriers, plus of course many of the state funds um, that will write uh, Longshore on, on a voluntary basis. So the real market is, is pretty limited. Um, when you look at carriers that are writing nationally, uh, that number uh, reduces even further. Uh, many of the carriers within that 17 or so are regional. Uh, some are writing in many states, but not all states. So you, you probably got on any one account in any one location, maybe anything between five uh, to possibly eight or nine potential markets, but that's about it. What is the main difference between a deductible and a self-insured retention? In the liability market, a deductible is typically paid by the carrier and then reimbursed by the insured to the carrier. Whereas a self-insured retention is normally paid directly by the insured to whoever the claimant is. Now there's some variations in that and, and there's different involvement of adjusters and third-party administrators. So unfortunately, when you dig down into this, uh, the devil is in the detail. Um, it's going into the policy language, going into the practice of the carrier to find out exactly how this works. But um, simplistically, um, the difference is that in a deductible, it's paid by the carrier and reimbursed, and uh, in a self-insured retention paid by the client. When you move to items like hull insurance or other physical damage insurance, that difference um, gets a little more fuzzy um, because um, you never have the deductible actually paid, it's simply just deducted out of the amount that it's reimbursed to the insured. Um, so it's really a matter of who's actually handling the adjustment of the claim in the process. A uh, little clearer on the liability side, but a little more fuzzy on the physical damage side. Um, really got to talk to the carrier uh, to work out how this applies particularly when you get to large numbers. Uh, if the deductible or self-insured retention is five or $10,000, probably doesn't make a lot of difference. If it's a hundred thousand or a quarter of a million, um, there's a very big difference in how this might work. What do you see as the most common mistake when it comes to longshore exemptions? By far and away, the most common mistake in longshore exemptions is assuming what a recreational vessel is. I think we can all look at a vessel and say, oh, that's recreational. But unfortunately, the eyes of longshore on the uh, applic application of the rules and regulations don't agree with what the eyes might see. And in particular, vessels like uh, mega yachts, charter boats, um, charter fishing boats, just to our eye might look like recreational vessels, but in the eyes of Longshore, they're considered commercial vessels. 
Um, there's a lot of detail of this in a webinar we did a couple of years ago on what is a recreational vessel. So if you need to know more, but that is by far and away the most common um, misconception within the longshore exemptions. Why does LIG always recommend USLNH on an if any basis, even when a risk is exempted from longshore? There are really two reasons to buy longshore coverage on an if any basis or on a low premium basis, even when the risk is exempted. Um, the first is defense costs. Uh, if you do not have the longshore coverage on your policy, you have nobody to defend you. And just because somebody may believe that a risk is exempted from longshore doesn't stop the injured employee bringing a longshore claim. Uh, to go to federal court can cost you well into six figures to win a successful longshore defense. And it's a very expensive proposition. If you can get your carrier to add longshore on if any or a small premium basis, you might be spending maybe a couple of hundred dollars to effectively get an, an unlimited defense cost policy. Second, new case law. Um, you, you never know where longshore is going. Um, it keeps getting a little bit broader every year. And we might have an accident today that's not heard in court for another three years. And during that period of time, there's another case that comes along that just takes it a little bit further and takes it a little bit further until the exemption we think today is solid goes away. Um, a few years ago, um, everybody believed security guards were exempt. Now that's simply not true. Um, security guards are covered by longshore unless they are basically locked away in the office. And um, that's all because of case law that's taken that through some steps over the years. So you will get the odd decision, you will get the decision that's stepping away. So again, having that coverage now um, allows the claim to be brought, to be defended, and even if lost, uh, to be covered. Remember, there's no statute of limitations on Longshore. You can bring a claim in 10 years time for something that happened today and um, with some very minor exceptions there's no prohibition to that so you're always looking down the line for that extra level of coverage and, and adding longshore on if any basis can be uh, such a minimal cost for such a great reward if there's any possible way somebody could remotely be, ever be considered longshore it's the thing to do what is actions over and how does it work So what is actions over? Let's say we have an employer who enters into a contract with a principal, some big shipyard, oil company. In that contract, we've got an injured worker who goes ahead and collect benefits, whether it's workers' comp, longshore, or even maritime benefits from the employer. But then they go ahead and they want more money. So they go ahead and sue the principal that shipyard, that oil company, on top of the benefits they've already collected from the employer. Well, in that contract the employer has entered into with the principal, there's an indemnity provision that says, 
Hey employer, if you or one of your employees sues the principal, you're going to indemnify us for any benefits that we have to pay that injured worker and probably for any defense we have to put out. That's called an actions over claim. If you look at that purple line that goes over the top, it's actions over the top of the employer and that's really where the name comes back from. And then the indemnity provision, that yellow line, shows it flowing back to the employer. It's usually covered by the general liability policy of the employer, even though the indemnity is to a worker. It's one of the few times you find injuries to workers covered under a general liability policy because it's under the contractual liability section. Sometimes people ask for actions over endorsements. Uh, for most general liability policies, that's not necessary because it's already in there. But you do have to look at the provisions of the contract, the, the general liability policy itself, uh, to make sure that that's not been taken out by some special language. Um, just be very careful about that. Um, and look, of course, for actions over exclusion or clause. Uh, they do exist. Um, some carriers do put them in there when the basic policy form provides the coverage to take it back out again. But that's an actions over claim. What is the difference between a marine CGL and a straight CGL? The difference between a marine CGL and a straight or non-marine CGL is that the marine CGL has the watercraft exclusion deleted. Um, this makes it so the, the policy will cover marine work um, that the client is doing, which is basically the, the reason why they get that policy to cover their operations and their work. Um, a straight CGL or a non-marine uh, carrier will not cover marine work, and they have that watercraft exclusion in there, so that, that prevents them from doing any marine work. So that's why if you're having a client that does marine jobs, any shape, way, or form, they need a marine CGL from a marine carrier. Why is crew coverage needed when the employee is not true crew? There are a couple of good reasons for this. The first is that if an employee brings a Jones Act claim, you get defense costs included in the MEL policy. Even if they are not found to have semen status, you still get the defense costs. The second part is a bit more complex. There are times when the longshore policy does not respond to certain claims because of exemptions such as the territorial limits. And then you get transportation, wages, maintenance, and cure, for example, with the MEL policy, which gives you some of the same benefits that sort of resemble what you would receive from the longshore policy included in your maritime policy. Why are divers covered under MEL versus P&I? Well, there's actually a couple of ways that the divers are covered. Um, if they're diving from a vessel, uh, they tend to be covered under the MAL. Now, the reason for this is that the common P&I wordings, um, SP23, for example, says damage or expense while engaged in or resulting from any commercial diving operation or service from the vessel, except, however, any liability incurred when the vessel's crew is engaged in inspection or repair of the vessel which could not be deferred until commercial divers were available. That basically says commercial diving is exempted, except for a rare instance when you don't have time, it's, it's urgent. If they're diving from a vessel, they are 
excluded from the PNI, as we just said, and they're clearly excluded from the longshore because they're not longshore diving. So the MEL is the natural place for it. There's another benefit of that is that the MEL underwriters are typically used to that kind of exposure, and they find it is a easy and good place to write it. Now, just to make sure that we are absolutely clear, MEL diving is diving from a vessel, which is you get into the water from the vessel. Longshore diving is diving from the dock, the land, or the pier. What is the best way to cover vendors working on a cruise ship? So the best way to cover co vendors that work on cruise ship is with a concessionaire's package. This package includes MEL, which is for the employees while they're working on the vessel. It'll cover them at dock and away from dock. And then this concessionaire's package also includes the MGL. What's great about including the MGL is wherever their premise is on the cruise ship, if they happen to have tools laying around or something else or wires and somebody accidentally comes and trips and falls, that MGL will actually cover them on their premises for any incidental slip and fall coverage. So that's a great benefit. This package can also include miscellaneous tools if needed, and um, if there's any anything extras, depending on the carriers, we can add some extra, extra coverages in there as well. Most carriers have these uh, concessionaire packages and policies on a 1 million combined single limit, but there's other ones that'll have a million for the MEL limit and then a million for the GL limit, just depends on the carriers. In addition to the concessionaires package, we would also give them the work or recommend giving them the, a work comp and USLNH policy because that will cover the USLNH will cover any on loading or unloading of any of their items that they need on the cruise ship. And of course, the work comp will cover their state act. Um, these four coverages that are combined into two, two, two separate policies will give the proper coverage for any vendor that's working on a cruise ship. Are subcontractors working on a marina exempt from longshore? Subcontractors working on a marina are exempt from longshore for the following reason. The Longshore and Harbor Workers' Compensation Act reads, individuals employed by a marina who are not engaged in construction, replacement, or expansion of such marina, except for routine maintenance. Now, that reads fairly ambiguous, but with coverage questions such as this, it is not up for our interpretation. It is up to the court's interpretation. They have found themselves to be quite literal in the reading of the Longshore Harbor Workers' Compensation Act in particular. One of the words that is of particular interest in this is individuals employed by a marina. Now, they've taken that to mean individuals employed directly by a marina. This means subcontractors are not included in the marina exclusion. We see this a lot in uh, submissions we get, and uh, it is a common exposure. Now, there are many times when this may not affect you, and uh, 
your state act workers comp or long short claim may come however it does and not severely affect you but the problem comes when it's a big claim that's when the marina exclusion gets tested the most it's not on the small little ones it's the big one um, that's where you see the courts get involved and view longshore status um, as a literal definition um, so at the end of the day we find it's best to include if any longshore on marinas um, to catch things that are not under the exclusion if they're not doing true repair um, or something that's deemed to be true repair and that we always cover subcontractors working on marinas as true longshore and they're typically charged for a rate as such but we find that they get a better coverage and that if the big claim were to come through they'd still be protected why does mel charge for payrolls on watercraft dockside which is considered longshore There are a couple of reasons why um, payrolls for watercraft dockside are included in the MEL calculations. Uh, the first being that it gives the MEL underwriters a better idea as to the total watercraft time. Now, when calculating Jones Act status, dockside on watercraft time is included in the 30% calculation typically. So it should be noted that if they're spending a great deal of their time dockside and a little bit of it away from dock that they they could be over that 30 percent ratio quite easily the second part is that even though they may not receive jones act status the additional time or tracking the amount of time that is on vessel dockside does if it increases increases the chance of a jones act status claim being brought and we've already discussed that you get defense costs built into your MEL policy. So as there is an additional exposure and likelihood that a claim is brought even unnecessarily, there should be an additional premium charged. One of the factors that's generally not discussed too often is the fact that underwriters understand that dockside vessel payroll typically is a lower likelihood than away from dock vessel payroll for having a Jones Act or other maritime claim. With this, they take that into account when they're doing their ratings and generally will charge a lower rate for things that are more heavily dockside than for things that are primarily away from dock. This appears to be that you're getting double charged, but in reality, you're only getting charged for the exposure in which you have in where you have it. Um, it is charged at a much lower rate dockside because you have the other coverage that is more likely to respond. How does a marine equipment policy differ from a standard equipment policy? policy, a marine form versus a standard form, the main biggest reason is on a standard equipment policy, they have a waterborne exclusion. 
Um, a marine policy does not have that waterborne exclusion. So if you have a client that has items that they work over the water on a vessel or maybe a crane on a barge, if they're on a standard form, they don't have any coverage while it's over the water. While if you're on a marine equipment policy, they do have coverage while it's over the water. So if they drop a tool or it gets wet, that's the kind of coverage that, um, that will be provided under marine policy. Some other standard policies um, for equipment, they'll put it on a property form. The property form's not very good either for marine, for marine uh, equipment because it does not include the transit to and from locations, and it also doesn't include uh, coverage for if tools are left at a job site temporarily. So if you have a marine client that moves equipment around or has equipment over the water, it really needs to be on a true marine equipment form to provide them coverage in all aspects to and from premises, location, off premises, and over water.